If you want to stand for the reading of the word, we're going to read from Matthew. We're going to be teaching, finishing Daniel 7 tonight, but reading from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, this, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I know it seems like we've been in Daniel 7 for a long time. You guys feel that? Like it's been a, been a while? Been in Daniel 7 now for several weeks. But honestly, it's not long enough. <laughs> Daniel 7 is one of these chapters that was so pivotal, so essential to understanding much of the New Testament, for sure the rest of Daniel. Like you, you can't get into 8, 9, 10 further Without It all is pointing back to Daniel 7. And as a reminder, our goal in this series, our goal in teaching through this book, is ultimately not just to know the stories. We're not here just to know these Bible stories, but we are looking at what it looks like to live as a faithful exile. What does it mean to be encouraged by these prophecies, by these uh, words that Daniel received as a faithful exile. Encouragement and steadfastness. It has been that throughout many, many generations of exiles and Christians. This particular chapter, chapter 7, is one of the most important chapters for Jesus By far. Specifically, tonight I want to look at this title, the Son of Man. What's the deal with this title? 
the son of man. Daniel says one like a son of man. It's really actually, it's a common title used in the Old Testament, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Most often it's used to describe just a, a human one. This literally means like born of a human. Son you, you, from Narnia, son of Adam, right? You guys know that? Means to be a human. It's pretty straightforward. Tom mentioned last week the Council of Chalcedonia, was it AD 450, somewhere in there? Uh, they debated and settled on what they called the hypostatic union, this, this concept of son of man, son of God, together in one person. Two genuine natures held together in one person. It's generally taken son of man to mean human. It's pretty straightforward. But it's Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself, the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, I, I think actually that's the point. The point is this is a human. Let's read this. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. It's not going to be on the slides tonight, so you have to get your Bibles out and use them. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. We've read this many times. Hopefully you're reading it on your own, so you're pretty familiar with it, yeah? Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's our word, our title. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, Languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The point here is that this is a human figure. This is a human, a son of Adam, a son of man, who is ascending and doing God's stuff. He's riding on the clouds. He's given glory and dominion. He's given an everlasting kingdom. He's worshipped later on in the chapter. This is God's stuff. This is stuff that a son of man doesn't do, so this is not just any ordinary son of man. It's the God-man. Tonight my goal is to look at the way Jesus referenced this passage. Jesus over and over, called himself the Son of Man. So let's look at what his understanding was of what that meant. For the most part, in all the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is called Christ, or literally Messiah. Most other people, when they're talking about Jesus, they use that word, Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah. But interestingly, Jesus almost never calls himself the Christ, the Messiah. I think that's, that's not because he didn't know that he was the Christ. I think he knew full well. But I think what, what I hope to sort of 
play with tonight is I think he's trying to clarify what kind of Messiah he is. There had been other ones that were anointed, other Christ-like figures that had cropped up and developed. Jesus is clarifying what, it, what kind of Christ is he? The term son of man is used by Jesus over 80 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. 32 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 26 in Luke, and 10 times in John. By far, this is his most favorite title for himself. It's kind of odd. He's talking about himself in third person. Has that ever struck you as kind of like, Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man. Am I the only one that's thought that's kind of odd? Okay. In all of these texts, Jesus is the speaker. No one ever calls him the son of man. It's only him. Outside of the gospels, this term occurs five times. There's a lot of scripture here. So Acts 7, 56, Stephen says that he sees heaven opened. You guys remember the story? And he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 2, verse 6, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalms 8, and he applies these words to Jesus. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man that you care for him? Then in Revelation, multiple times, but in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 14, Jesus is, again, one like a son of man. The same word used in Daniel. He's described clearly in terms that are meant to evoke an imagery from Daniel. This is how he's described in Revelation. He's clothed with a white Sorry, with a long robe, his head and his hair are white as white wool or as snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined as in the furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. This is meant to be apocalyptic language that should draw your attention back to Daniel. If we look just at Matthew's gospel, though, 32 times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Check this out. The first time he does it, first time Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Pop quiz. Anybody know where it is? Matthew 8. I thought you guys were Bible students. Matthew 8. Chapter 20, Jewish scribes step out from the crowd and express desire to follow Jesus wherever he's about to go. And Jesus says this, he responds with this, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's possible I mean, the scribes had an intimate knowledge of the book of Daniel. These guys knew their Bible. They were were Bible experts. It's possible that they would hear that term 
and they would catch the significance. We'd hope that they would at least think it through and ponder, what is he talking about? The son of man? He's talking in third person. Is this? But he, Matthew marks no mention of the scribe's response. There's no, like, even question of it. Even the readers of Matthew's gospel, you're kind of confused. What, what is he talking about? As you continue to read through Matthew's gospel, each use of Jesus' self-titling here becomes a little bit closer, a little bit fuller of a picture. It begins to color in the lines and fill out what he means when he calls himself the Son of Man. So we start with a view of this overwhelming humility, the Son of Man that doesn't have a place to lay his head. Then in chapter 9, Jesus says the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. Chapter 11, he eats and drinks just as one of us. In chapter 12, Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 16, it says the Son of, he says the Son of Man will be buried in the earth for three days. Chapter 17, he says the Son of Man will be raised from the dead. Chapter 19 says he will be delivered over. Chapter 20, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 24, he will come and bring final judgment and glory. And then by the time we get to the 30th time, 30 second, there's some debate here, that Jesus uses this term, we get to the passage that we read tonight. Jesus is on trial, this mock trial, standing before Caiaphas and the scribes and the elders. This is known as the Jewish trial. Most scholars believe it was a mock trial. There really is no merit to it. But it's the beginning, nonetheless, of the legal process that would take him to the cross. What we see, just walking through this story for some back, back stories, Caiaphas, the high priest, is looking to find evidence against Jesus. He's trying to find a way to get him killed. And at first, the accusations are just too outlandish. They're too extreme. They can't be verified. They're all fake. Eventually, two witnesses come up and they say, something that kind of has some merit to it. They say this. They say, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. True or false? Did Jesus say that? Sort of. John, tw John 2 is where we have this recorded. John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, that's pretty close. Keep reading. Verse 20. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus that he had spoken. Nonetheless, the high priest jumps on this one. Okay, there's something we can use. The Romans will like that. It sounds like insurrection. It sounds like an insurrectionist. He's going to destroy the temple. Verse 62, back in Matthew. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. I love this about Jesus. He remained silent. He did not even entertain the false accusations. He didn't have to defend himself. He remained silent. The high priest then said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas puts the pressure on Jesus. Turning the screw a little bit, puts some pressure. He says, swear to me in the name of God. Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? The son of David, the son of God, is that you? And this is where we get back to our chapter in Daniel, Daniel 7. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus breaks his silence. He breaks his silence, and he says, that's how you put it. Sure. Then he puts an exclamation point on now his numerous uses of this language, son of man. They might have missed it in the previous 30 uses, but now there's no missing it. Now you're not missing that he's pointing to Daniel 7. To make sure that you don't miss it, Jesus adds this reference of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1, which is a very pointed reference to say to the high priest. Because Psalm 110 ties the Messiah to being the rightful priest, the true priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not only is Jesus the son of man from Daniel 7, but he's the true right high priest from Psalm 110. This was a total accusation against Caiaphas being an imposter. I want to look at three implications here. We'll go quickly. Of Jesus' use of this title from Daniel 7. First off, this is implication here. It means he has authority. The authority of the Son of Man is clearly what's in focus in Daniel's vision. 
Son of Man is enthroned. His power is universal, it's total, it's unending, it's unchanging, it's unchallenged. And Jesus claims that authority for himself. Matthew 12, we looked at this. Jesus says that he's the, the son of man, has, is Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't fully unpack that there. But his claim is clear. He has authority. Again in Matthew 9, there's a paralytic who's brought to Jesus for, for healing. And Jesus does something odd. He first pronounces his sins are forgiven. You guys remember the story? Matthew 9, 2. The scribes hear this and they are outraged. What are you doing? You can't just tell somebody their sin is forgiven. And in response, Jesus ex explains that the son, he explains that this was just his point. That you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin. And then he heals the man. He tells him to get up. This is his point. The Son of Man has authority. The miracle was just a proof that he had authority. Jesus, the slain one, possesses all authority. Divine authority. Authority to heal. Authority to forgive sin. He's the son of man from Daniel 7. With an everlasting kingdom that is unchallenged. Second implication here. We can't miss this. His humiliation, rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. Not just that he has authority, but also that he has laid down that authority to a certain extent. Ironically, we also see that Jesus used this title, Son of Man, clearly to tie to his rejection, his suffering, his death. Not just his enthronement and power, but also to his suffering and death. We've looked at a few of these already, but foxes, have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 16, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days raise again. Mark 9, 31, Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and you will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. In all of these contexts, Jesus is responding to an or a, uh, a confession that he's the Christ, and you see him turn that son of man is going to be rejected. He's going to go to the cross. It had to have been puzzling for his disciples. You're the Christ. Yes. And I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. The anointed, royal, powerful, reigning Messiah is also a suffering, 
dying Messiah. It was ultimately by his, by the means of his suffering and death and ultimately his resurrection that the Lord achieved his kingship. It is because of his suffering and death that authority was given to him. It is because of that, as Philippians says, that he has been it, it has been bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Theologians commonly refer to Jesus' cross as his coronation. He's reigning from the cross. His enthronement from the cross. It was in apparent weakness and defeat that he rescued his people and he brought them into the kingdom of God. The idea here in view is, is the same as we, look, as we look at in Revelation 5. Similar story, similar picture of the throne room. And you see the God, the Ancient of Days, on his throne. And he holds this scroll sealed with seven seals. You guys know the story? And only the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slain lamb, is found worthy to take this scroll and open its seals. That is, only he is worthy to carry out God's purpose. Because he was slain, and by his blood he has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he has made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's Revelation 5, verse 10. It's by his death and resurrection that Christ achieved his reign as king and as mediator. For sure, this is what he had in mind when Jesus references Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 on that trial in front of the high priest. Jesus is referencing himself as the Son of Man by making this direct reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is conquering and being given all authority and power, where he's being established as the eternal ruler with authority in heaven. And the council in front of him rightly interprets this as him placing himself at the same level as God. He's enthroning himself, they say. This is blasphemy. But... His exercise of authority was not to overthrow an empire like they thought. They were expecting him to overthrow an empire, but Jesus' victory came through humility and through suffering, ultimately by going to the cross. If you read through Matthew and you look at every one of these references, the Son of Man, 
you begin to get a full picture of who Jesus saw himself as. What did Jesus mean when he said the son of man? You begin to connect the dots and see through this progressive picture of who the coming son of man actually is. You get a fuller perspective. And Jesus says here in in Matthew, he says, from now on, he's headed to the cross. From now on, in the work of the Passion Week, you will see the coronation of the Son of Man. Here in his death, his seeming defeat, and ultimately in the resurrection, the Lord will receive his kingdom and be established forever and ever and ever. Third implication here. His return and future glory. It's probably most prominent when you look through Matthew especially at these uses of the word, the title son of man. Is that his return to earth will ultimately be to exercise his full rights of his kingship and bring about God's kingdom and consummation. He will finish what he started. Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, you will see this, uh, when the Son of Man will sit. <clears throat> Sorry. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who, will, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. You see the connection there to Daniel 7. Then again, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is how Jesus saw himself. Daniel clearly envisioned this coronation of a king, an establishment of his rule. This prophecy looks further, though, past the cross to the kingdom and its climactic culmination, where the Son of Man is ruling with his saints universally and his enemies have all been subdued. The Lord will lay claim to that rule himself. And in an obvious reference back to Daniel 7, the Apostle John leads us to anticipate the same in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. 
This all climaxes, of course, in the return of Christ as Jesus, the conqueror, descends on the white horse, Revelation 19. And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's a lot of scripture tonight, guys. It's all over the place. God's kingdom will come in its fullness by the saving work, ultimately, of the Son of Man. And this is good news for us. This is the working out of the gospel message. He has a plan. He's on a mission. And he will finish what he started. Mankind was created in God's image to rule over God's creation as his vice regents in Genesis. This exalted status was forfeited by sin. We let it go. But in Jesus, the true man, the son of man, humanity has been redeemed and restored He is the son of man. He's the transcendent Messiah who by his saving work on the cross has earned kingship and authority and power which is being exercised now through the proclamation of the gospel of his kingdom, the bringing in of those who are far from God and will ultimately be executed in fullness when he returns. Philippians 2, 9 through 10, every knee will bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord. Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And he is the all-conquering victor and king. He has an eternal kingdom. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in equal authority. And yet, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. The Messiah didn't come in arrogance and pomp and pride. He came as the suffering servant. He laid his life down. This is our humble yet victorious king. This is the path of discipleship. This is what it looks like for us to follow in the way of Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus, to lay our life down, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. His model for us has always been one of sacrifice, one of laying down our rights and our privileges, to become more like him for the sake of of the mission, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake 
of what he has paid for and accomplished by his blood. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you that by your blood you have purchased us, that you have accomplished what you've set out to accomplish, and you will finish what you started. Jesus, that you are faithful and true, that there is no one like you, and you stand alone. that you are right now seated at the right hand of the Father, that that vision of Daniel and Daniel 7 is, is all about you. That whether there's beasts and chaos, coming or going, you are enthroned. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your power is unyielding. Jesus, help us to get a better picture of who you are. A fuller picture, a more dynamic picture of who you are and what you're like. We love you, Jesus. Amen.